Great, thank you so much, Joe. Um, if you've got your, your is permission to get your phone out in church, because uh, if you've got a Bible app on it, or you can Google the, the reading from um, Luke, Luke's Gospel, uh, if you're at home, maybe you've got it in book form, old school, get you, then uh, look up Luke chapter 2, uh, or on your phone or tablet or whatever it is. Um, and just while you're finding that, um, just for those who, who aren't aware, um, I don't want to assume anything, Luke was a doctor, you see from the very first um, few sentences of this account of Jesus' life. So he would have been trained, he's a rational guy, he's an intelligent guy, he would have been trained to look at and sift through evidence kind of forensically and in detail. So when he's compiled this account of Jesus' life, he's done it with care um, to be accurate. Doctors, surgeons, they need to be accurate. Uh, and so he'll have discounted fable and myth and, and, oh, well, I think I recall. Yeah, well, check it out uh, and come back to me when it's substantial fact. And, and then I will sew this together into an account of Jesus' life. And, and here we have the account of his birth. Listen to the detail in, in verse um, 2, the bit in bracket. It's precisely dated. And notice also, just as I begin to read, that the whole world, the whole world, back there, back then, was thrown into chaos and confusion by the emperor at the time. Just as this virus is, and the way in which it's being managed or not, handled or not, is throwing us into confusion and despair and, and, and sort of wrong-footing us. So, Luke and his detailed, accurate account of the birth of Jesus Christ. Verse 1 of chapter 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. Massive upheaval. So, Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths, and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Short word of prayer, just asking God to connect what I've just read, that passage there, with our hearts and minds now. Lord, thank you for these little details of your birth. We pray in the context of this traditional season that you'd break through myth and chat into the reality of who you are for us today and for all those around your world crying out and in need of your presence, your healing, your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Traditions. Have you got, have you got tradition, other traditions in your family, your friendship group uh, that kind of seem to be accentuated or come alive at Christmas time? Uh, just things that you, uh, you, know, you would have been, maybe you still are in some way, looking forward to, kind of make the most of our traditions 
it, it, it could be, you know, you've already dressed your tree or decorated your house, you've perhaps written some Christmas cards. There's particular cooking, uh, you know, maybe you've been baking loads of mince pies, making the Christmas cake, whatever it is. The traditions, maybe the, the, the games that you look forward to, to playing on Boxing Day, or the, there's things that you do in the lead up to and on Christmas Day, there's a certain way of doing, there's a certain time to open presents, isn't it? Very religious, you know. Joe and I, when we first got married, we, it was a real clash of Christmas traditions. Uh, Joe was brought up, I and mean, basically every single present had been ripped open by about seven o'clock in the morning. Uh, in our household, we still lived in the Victorian era, uh, kind of deferred gratification. And uh, poor, my sister and I, we had to wait till tea time, basically. We felt like tea time anyway. But before, so, you, you know, all these richly held traditions. And they're powerful. They're powerful because traditions reassure us. They, they bring us comfort. So, so particularly when all is not well with the world around us or the world within us, when we are ill at ease, it, it's to go to a, to, a, to a habit, a comfort, a tradition that uh, often, if they're, if they're sourced healthily, anchor us, they, they reassure us, they calm us. That's, that's in part what lies behind our frustration now because we, we're looking forward to inhabiting those once a year traditions that go, ah, oh, even if my job is a bit flaky, even if I don't know what 2021 looks like, even if I haven't got much money in the bank and I don't know how this relationship is going, well, at least, ah, oh, traditions. And, and because they are so strong and secured in us, they, they kind of root and tether us, they actually are quite hard to break or revise. Again, case in point, again, forgive me, sort of indulging you with, with, with tales of family still well, but, and I let you into a little secret here, and I don't know whether you, you share this online or in the, in the room. I personally, I love food, but I'm not a great fan, if I'm honest, of turkey. Roast turkey. I just, I, 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 so I eat it at Christmas because it's just traditionally, there it is, traditionally served up. But have you ever asked yourself, why is it on a traditional Christmas dinner, there's all sorts of other things served up on the plate as well that have taste? <laughs> like Brussels sprouts. I mean, I know that we've got some younger members of the, of the family and probably older people well in the building here and are you at home. Let's not have a vote on Brussels sprouts. And I'm in danger of sort of riffing into a Michael McIntyre sketch on this whole Christmas dinner thing. But Brussels sprouts, at least, I mean, they, they don't taste great if I'm honest, but at least they've got a taste. Turkey. And so I put it to the, to the Stillwell family. We have, every now and then we have little conventions around the table. I say, guys, Christmas coming up. Can I just, do we, I wonder if there's an alternative. Why don't we have, because we enjoy a, a leg of lamb or a nut roast or a, a salad, whatever it is. Why don't we break with tradition? Because to be honest, guys, I don't hear you rushing off. To, oh, I'm going to the shops. Anyone need anything? Yeah. Oh, we've run out of milk. We need some bread. Oh, you must get some turkey. You haven't had turkey for a week. Never, never hear that the whole rest of the year. And yet, when I put it to our kids, who I kind of think are fairly sort of, you know, 21st century guys, sort of you know, going with the flow, I say, well, guys, why don't we not have turkey this year? No! Traditional! Gotta have turkey. Yeah, but it doesn't taste of anything. I know, but we've still got to eat it. Yeah, but what do we do with the leftovers? We end up just chucking out, what a waste. Cold turkey. You're, I understand that phrase now. We're linked to drug rehab. It's awful, horrible. I get it. Cold turkey. No. I guarantee Friday lunchtime or dinner time, whenever it is, I, I, I virtually guarantee, I know what it is we're going to be eating. Turkey. Traditions. 
hard to break, hard to revise. And the story, the narrative, the retelling of Christmas, the birth of Jesus Christ, is, is kind of encased, surrounded with tradition. Many of those traditions are, are good and, and noble. Um, Mary, Joseph, the interaction of, of God in those two and Elizabeth and others, there's, there's stuff going around that are retold in the Christmas story year on year by tradition. The, the Magi, the shepherds. But there's one little element of the traditional Christmas story that if, if you'll if you'll bear with me, I kind of want to just stick a pin in and deflate. It's around the place where Jesus was born, the, the building. You, I mean, if it, it's not usually an interactive thing, and I know you've got a mask and all that kind of stuff, but can I just ask, would you be able to name, anyone want to just put their hand up and just call out the, the name of the building where Jesus is traditionally held to have been born? Thank you very much, sir. A stable, if you didn't catch that online. A stable. Did you get that at home? A stable. Jesus was born in a stable. Yes, of course he was. You know from the carols, I think we sang one today. Once in Royal Davis City stood a lowly cattle shed. Cattle shed, another name for stable. Or see him lying on a bed of straw. Drafty stable. Open door. Jesus born in a stable. But now I want to just come back to this account written by the doctor, the guy who likes details, who likes to get it right. And in this account of Jesus' birth, I see no mention of a stable. Now what I do see in verse 7 is this phrase, guest room. So let me just read it in context. While they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, and she wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. Two words there, actually, manger, or like a feeding trough for animals, and then this word guest room, which in older versions of the Bible was translated in. There was no room at the inn. And so Jesus had to be placed in a feeding trough for animals. And we think, well, okay, there's no room in any normal building. There's no room in, in a, like an inn or a hotel or anything else. So there's absolutely no room anywhere for Jesus. So he'll have to be born in a feeding trough. And well, where do you find animal feeding troughs? Well, obviously, where you keep animals. Where do you keep animals? Well, in a stable. So thought the medieval artists who began to paint and depict this scene. And so they, they picture... Jesus in a feeding trough in a, a kind of cattle shed, a, 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 an animal barn separate from the house. And we're told that there's no room at the inn. And uh, so it all kind of makes sense. It's understandable how this tradition of Jesus being born in a stable came to be. And so the lines and the carols and everything else go to emphasize this tradition, to ink it in, and, and you can't change it. That's how it is. But here comes the pin. Uh, and I'm grateful here, as many um, uh, preachers are, to the, the, the scholar um, uh, Kenneth Bailey, who's done a lot of work in first century Palestine. In other words, the, the time, the place of Jesus at the time of Jesus. What was it really like? What was really going on? And, and he tells us that Middle Eastern houses, actually very much today as then, 
you didn't have, like our houses, the, the nuclear family with, with lots of individual rooms, you know, a kitchen and a front room and a living room and bedrooms and all these separated little rooms within a sort of little nuclear castle of a house. No, it was just all open plan. It was just one great big room, effectively, for the whole extended family to live in. You had granny and grandpa and aunts and uncles, all, and particularly at this time, because the, the census has meant that all these ancestral clans are coming together. Joseph, who lives in uh, Nazareth, in Galilee, travels to Bethlehem, where his family are based. And they all gather together in the family home. That, that's how they, they made homes or houses then. So, so what did you do if you had a little few livestock? Goats, sheep, um, maybe a cow or two, a donkey? Well, during the winter months, you, you brought them into the building. And again, excavations uh, reveal that the, the kind of open plan house had a kind of, if you like, a lower tier, a sort of semi-basement, and you'd bring the animals in there. I mean, you say, ugh, they had animals. I mean, well, how many of us have a dog or a cat or a hamster or a rabbit? I mean, we, we have animals living in our homes today. And certainly our dog, we sadly passed away this year, but our dog was very flatulent. So if you're thinking, well, what about the smell? Yeah, well, again, 21st century living. We, we live with that too. In fact, you, you know, they didn't have central heating back then. To have a cow and a few sheep, the, the body warmth, okay, a little bit of aroma, but the body warmth kept you warm made sense the animals were in so what they did actually a bit like this this would be the living quarters here on the stage and then down there is where they would be and and what they do is just just like bevel out a bit in the floor or maybe have a kind of well a, a trough a manger to put in some hay or food so the animals could come and feed a more accurate translation of the words that was translated in in verse 7 is here i think in 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 verse 7 here in this more I'm in the NIV, uh, the New International Version, because there was no guest room available for them. The idea of a, the translation is the, the word is cataluma, and to, it, it, the, 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 the translation in is quite a loose translation for cataluma. Um, it's the same word, cataluma, that was used in John 13 to describe where Jesus had the Last Supper. In an, we, there it's in the, in the English version, the upper room. So, it, that's much more likely. A cataluma is an upper room. It's a spare room. It's the guest room. And as everyone's descended to their ancestral homes, and Mary and Joseph probably got there a little bit late, so there's, there's no room in the guest room. It, it's, it's not that they're searching other hotels and inns and going out to far-flung places. They are in that family home. It's unthinkable to conceive of a Middle Eastern family not welcoming their own. They do that today. Oh, come on in, come on in. It's, 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 they're much more family-oriented and community-minded than, than we are. Mary and Joseph would not have been left out in the cold to, to sort of shack up in a, a cattle shed. They would have, as Jesus was born, they would have said, oh gosh, where, there's no space. Oh, okay, we'll lay, we'll lay Jesus here. In, in, in that bed of straw on that feed truck, that'll do. When, when Joe and I were, uh, when I was training for the ministry, we lived in a tiny, tiny flat. 
uh, in, in Oxford and the kitchen was absolutely minuscule and we had uh, two of our children were born there uh, uh, during that time so we had a, a sort of burgeoning family little people uh, in a tiny tiny flat and at times in the kitchen if we were trying to sort of have a meal kind of together there just wasn't room to and I was holding the, a baby and I think and honestly the, the, sometimes the, the, the best the sort of most logistic way for us all to exist in this tiny kitchen was to pull out a drawer and just lay them in there it worked Knives, forks, baby. <laughs> That's effectively what's going on here. So, uh, oh, the guest room's full. Uh, everyone, where do we... Uh, well, oh, look, oh, no. we'll lay him here. You say to me, Tim, Tim, please. We, we, we're kind of tossed and turned here, 21st century London tier four, we're, we're imprisoned in our city, we, please don't, I need the traditions, I need the security, don't go and undermine them all, it's not, I, I, I don't want to undermine traditions, I don't want to undermine things that secure us, but what I want to argue is this, I think this particular tradition, that Jesus was born in a stable, sort of away from the family home, away from anyone, doesn't serve us. It doesn't help us. It won't bring us comfort. Let me try and demonstrate why that is as I, as I bring this uh, into land. I, I got these Christmas cards. And, and thank you for all of the who sent, either the staff team here or, or Joe and I personally, he sent us cards. He, look, it's of the birth scene of Jesus. Here's, here's the first one, if you can pick it up on the camera and if you can see that. Life. And again, it, it's kind of serving to illustrate my point. We've taken this, this particular tradition and, and amplified it and, and said, no, this is how it was. There's Mary, oh, sorry, there's Mary, there's Joseph, quite hard to tell because they're fairly amorphous sort of drawings, and um, Jesus in a manger, and there's the shed and the star, and absolutely no one or nothing else. Like in complete glorious isolation. This one's even, look at this one. Here, here lovely colour shade uh you got the star mary joseph jesus thing in the middle of nowhere <laughs> does it could be the sahara desert look at that jesus completely isolated completely on his own unique miles away from anyone else born in a stable because you don't have stable in the middle of your living room and i want to argue that that is bunkum and if we think about the implication of, if we hold to, to this, that Jesus was born in a, in, a, in a kind of feeding trough in the middle of nowhere, let's think about what that does for us in terms of how we relate to him. This is in the sense that everyone is together. All the families are together. All the clans are together. They're living in rich community. It's, it's a kind of great big reunion. And where is Jesus? He's, he's well, he's, he's not here. He's somewhere else. You want to find Jesus? You want to you meet Jesus? You want to engage with Jesus? Then you've got to go and find this. You've got to, you've got to walk across the Sahara Desert to go and find Jesus. He's, he's, he's excluded. He's out there. And if Luke heard us drawing that, Luke who wrote this account, heard us drawing that conclusion, he'd be horrified. No, what, what I mean you to take from this story is that Jesus wasn't born to us out there. 
Jesus was born to us right in the middle of our home, right in the heart of our family, right in the centre of our lives. Do you see what that means? It, it means that in order for us to live with God, we don't have to, it's not down to us. We don't have to go and find God. We don't have to go and search for Jesus. He's somewhere. He's somewhere. In a, anyone seen a stable anywhere? Jesus has come and found us. Whatever is going on in your family, whatever is going on in your home, whatever is going on in your life, the good things, the great things, the ta sad and terrible things, the things that cause you stress and anxiety as well as deep joy, whatever they are and all of those things, Jesus lives in the midst of them. You don't have to go to Jesus. You see, that's works, that's religion, that's me trying to get to God. When Christmas is the celebration that God has come to us. Gift, right in the middle of whatever is going on. Amid the stench and the smell, <laughs> of ox dung and arguments and squabbles and all the realities of life, Jesus. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. Not that we have to go to him, but that he has come to us. Here's the second thing. That, that if, we, if we can pinprick this, this sort of, the myth around this tradition, if we can, if we can just recalibrate that the incarnation, i.e. God coming to us in human form, means he's, he's born right in our midst. The, the second thing to, to, to run with, to chew on maybe in the next few days in the lead up to Christmas and the, and the true celebration. But by the way, um, you know that Christmas isn't just a day. You know it's a whole season. It goes to the January the 6th. Hey, the, the Christian church know how to throw a party. It's, it's a whole 12 days, guys. So don't fall short. When you pack away the, the paper and all that kind of thing, when you finish your turkey, if you're eating turkey, Carry on celebrating, because this is the greatest gift to humankind, God's coming to us. And, and here's the thing, if you, read the, um, if you read the accounts in Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2, every time God, through his messengers, his agents, the angels, when, when he appears via the angels to human beings, what are the first things they have to say? Don't be afraid. When the angel appears to Mary, don't be afraid. When the angel appears to Joseph in a dream, don't be afraid. When the angel appears to the shepherds, don't be afraid. Why? It's, it's, fairly, it's fairly straightforward. It's, it's, it's not rocket science. It's because an angelic being turning up in the middle of your life is frightening. <laughs> this 20-foot beaming source of beauty and holiness and radiance coming with the very presence of God. Oh, my, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy. That is terrifying. And the first thing they say is, no, don't, don't be afraid. These are ordinary human beings afraid of an angelic being. Imagine if God himself turned up, appeared. The word is, they use it, manifested. I mean, this is the God who threw stars into space and made the atom. 
This is the God who creates every single daisy, the same but different from every single one, who gives you your own unique thumbprint. He's so majestic and intricate. Imagine if God in all his form and glory turned up, you would be terrified. You'd run a mile, I'd run a mile. And Jesus doesn't, God in Jesus doesn't want to terrify us. God in Jesus doesn't want us to run a mile. So how does he choose to come to us? As a tiny, vulnerable, completely dependent baby. He didn't come powerfully in order to impress us. He came as a tiny baby in order to draw us in, to attract us. He wants us to connect with him. Colin Powell, who uh, in the 90s was the Joint Chief of Staff in um, uh, the first George, George Bush, the first or whatever, his, his dad's um, um, uh, uh, governance in, uh, in the States. And he said this, and he was speaking at a leadership conference, and he said this, of all the manifestations of power, restraint is the most appealing. God could have come as the majestic creator of heaven and earth, and he chose to come as a tiny baby. The other day, um, I was, uh, it was at the end of a service, and it was at the back of church, um, and uh, a couple who'd been members here for some time, and they had just had a newborn little girl, Edie, and uh, she was wrapped up, it was tiny. I could, you, every time, I, I literally days old, absolutely tiny, like a bag of sugar, it, it wrapped up in a, in, in a kind of shawl. And um, her parents very trustingly, actually it's their second one, so that's probably why they were a little bit more gung-ho, but they just, just handed her to me and I held this tiny little perfect human form in my, literally, just, you could just, just in one like that, and, um, and off, they, off they went, left me literally holding the baby. And I find at the end of church, I, you know, I just with people around, I found myself in, in conversation. And I couldn't help noticing that um, usually, you know, no one really wants to talk to the vicar at the end of church. He's probably going to ask you awkward questions and it's all a bit embarrassing, you know, what I'll say. Okay. So people sort of politely kind of avoid the vicar to go and, you know, inspect the paint on that pillar or, you know, sort of put away a few chairs or something. I couldn't help noticing as I held little Edie that it was like I was like a magnet. People were coming toward, not, they weren't coming towards me, they were coming towards Edie that I was holding. Vulnerability attracts us. The, the, weirdly, Brenny Brown is, is, is great on this, isn't he? If you just Google her, there's something about vulnerability, the lack of. Uh, a certain type of power manifested that actually draws us in. God chose to come to us in a tiny, fragile, vulnerable form to draw us in. If, as the tradition is, it did some far-flung stable, if <laughs> he'd sought to attract us by going as far away from us as possible, somehow 
the, the story of God coming to us wouldn't hold weight or have validity. This, this, this seems to, to weigh up, to stack up with the God who longs for us to connect with him. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray, cast out our sin and enter in, be born in us today. Amen.